Let's go ahead and get started this morning. We'll jump in on our study of anthropology. Anthropology is the study of man. Study of man. Not ants, as Dustin suggested. Um, We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to look at the origin of man. We're going to look at the nature of man. And then we're going to look at the ultimate purpose of man. So let's go ahead and look at the origin of man. When we speak about the origin of man, we're not merely speaking of when or how we came to be, but why we came to be. Why are we here? Origin gets at the reason and purpose for our very existence. Now, in the simplest sense, if we want to look at mankind generally, the easiest way to look at our origins is to simply say this, we were created by God. That's the simplest, most accurate way to say it. Look to Genesis chapter 1. A lot of what we can learn about the nature and the origin of man can be found in Genesis chapter 1. Not shocking that it starts that way. Genesis chapter 1, let's look at verses 26 and 27. We'll see this multiple times this morning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and the birds of the sky, and every living creature or living thing that moves on the earth. So we have there the creation of man. Now, what I want to look at here, I'm going to mention four things as it relates to the origin of man. And the first one is this, that we were created deliberately. That's the first D in your outline there. We were created deliberately by God, and that's important. To do something deliberately means that it is done with intention or will. You know, one of the distinctions we always tried to make with the kids growing up was when they sinned deliberately versus otherwise. You know what that means? If somebody looks you in the eye and they're just going to do it anyway, it's, a, it's an act of their will. That's different than doing something by mistake or an accident. And so, when we think about God and Him creating mankind, He created mankind deliberately as an act of His will. It's something that He predetermined. There was a, a debate we would have in seminary as one of our classes on the order in which God thought about the things that He would do as it came to creation. And while nobody knows what order God thought of things, did He first think of creating man, then think of creating the earth, and then think about the fall, and then think about salvation, or did He think about salvation first and then... Ma- we, we don't know. But the one thing that comes out of that debate all the time is that whatever order God thought of those things before he did them, just the fact that he thought about them meant that he was deliberate, that it was his will that led him to create mankind. Everything we see in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 screams that God created us with deliberation and intent. It is something he desired to do. It was his will that led him to do it. And we partly see this when you look at Genesis chapter 1. How many times does that phrase, then God said, appear? There's this, this cadence, this pattern to Genesis 1. Then God did this, and, and he did this. And he, all through that phrase, and God said, and it was, and God said. And what's interesting about Genesis chapter 1, I am convinced when you look at the structure, and you look at the grammar, you look at the language, you look at the way everything is laid out, 
that the climax of Genesis chapter 1 comes in verses 26 and 27. And I can't get into all the details or reasons why this morning, but everything down to the grammar and the structure of the language that's used there, the Hebrew language, everything points to verses 26 and 27 as the climax, right down to the language changing. Why does it say, and God said, and God said, and God said, and God said, and then all of a sudden it changes to let us make? Why? It's signaling the climax of that, because Everything about Genesis 1 and 2 is leading to one thing, the climax, the creation of mankind. Right down to the creation of the stars. You'll notice that when the stars and the the heavenly beings are created, it's for the purpose of serving mankind. Why? To tell time, to tell seasons. When you look at um, giving light upon the earth and other things, everything about Genesis chapter 1 is intended to lead us to the creation of Adam and Eve. Because that is the climax. In fact, everything about the earth was designed to serve the purposes of mankind who will then, in turn, glorify God. And that's oftentimes missed. That's really what Genesis 1 and 2 is about, is to get us to the creation of God, the climax of God's creation. He was intent and deliberate about creating mankind. Even, it's, it's, it's interesting, even with the creation of the animals, if you study the words that are used there, some of the animals that are created are, are domesticated animals requiring care. And in that, they're there to provide services for mankind. Do you ever wonder why it's rare to find just black and white cows out wandering around in the middle of nowhere? God designed them to serve us for certain purposes. And you can see that in, in creation. And so everything about Genesis chapter 1 tells us that God was deliberate in the creation of mankind. Again, right down to the language that's used and other things. Now, another thing we know about the creation of mankind is that we were created directly by God. So not only were we created deliberately by him, but we were created directly by him. The world would have us believe that mankind came about merely by random chance as a result of some type of spark and some primordial soup that somehow created life out of nothingness that then kind of continued to grow and evolve over time and ultimately led to what we see here today. My friend David Baton is here this morning and we went down to the ark on Thursday. And one of the things that becomes abundantly clear is that God always does things directly including our creation. We didn't evolve from some primordial soup. Unfortunately, many Christians have bought the lie of theistic evolution. There's a fairly large Christian ministry called BioLogos that insists that God used evolution and evolutionary processes to create us. And Adam and Eve were not a necessarily literal Adam and Eve that God created from the ground, but rather, at some point, apes or other Creatures sort of became man, and at that point, maybe God infused them with a soul or something. And, and they're kind of all over the map. Some of the, the followers of Biologos would argue that God simply sort of sat back and watched evolution as it took place. Others say, no, no, it was completely directed by God. And so they try to rescue this idea of God acting deliberately by somehow him just manipulating evolution, but... 
again, it was almost by accident or almost by chance. And again, they try to rescue that by making God responsible for that. But that's not what the Bible describes. In fact, what does the Bible describe? Look at Genesis chapter 1 again, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How many times is a phrase created used in that one verse? Do you think the author is trying to tell us something? It isn't God-directed evolution, or God selected this homonid named Adam out of all the other evolved creatures and somehow gave him... No, it doesn't say that. Turn to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. What do we see here? How did God actually create man? Then the Lord God formed man, what? Of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. How does evolution happen with that? No, it says God took from the dirt, fashioned him into something that looked like a head and legs and arms, and then breathed into him. It doesn't say that he reached out and took some homonid that came from some creatures and then somehow did something unique with him. No, he literally breathed life into this new creature that he made from the dust of the ground. We go on. And man became a living being. When? At that moment at which God took him from the dirt, breathed into him, at that moment he became a living creature. Then go on. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Again, we're told that. Notice All this is God directing it. All of this is God directly doing this. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food, the tree that is also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He talks about the garden in verse 10. If we jump down, look at verse 15. Then the Lord took the man and put him into the garden of Eden to cultivate and to keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying from... Any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. So what did Adam do? Gave names to all the animals? But then verse 21, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and that's actually the word for side, didn't literally take a rib, it took from his side, it says, closed up the flesh in that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. So how did God create Eve? Took a part of Adam, fashioned it into a woman so that she might be like him, Breathe life into her and he makes woman. Everything we see is that God directly created mankind. He didn't sit back and watch as evolution did its thing in spite of what biologos may say that God created evolution for that purpose. It's not what the Bible tells us. Moses could not have been clear when he wrote these words. His intent was to tell us that God directly formed with his own hands Adam and Eve from the ground. And then breathed life in his very, very mouth, his very nostrils into Adam. Genesis 1.27, again, God created man. He created him. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. Go ahead and turn there real quick. Genesis 5, chapter, or chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day that what? God created him. Notice it says in the day, not in the millions of years or anything else. And people will argue, well, you know, day can mean more than a day. Yeah, but there are times where a day just simply means a day. And God created Adam in a day, on a specific day. In the day when God created him, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them, male and female, and he blessed them and he named them man in the day when they were created. Again, you see the repetition? You know, sometimes you just got to take the word of God at face value and trust what it says. So, God created, and he did it not just deliberately, but he did it directly. Third thing, third point I want to make is that God created us uniquely. So we were created uniquely by God. Now, what do I mean by that? What does it mean to be unique? Well, it means to be unusual. It means to be extraordinary. It means to be rare or one of a kind. If I say this is unique, it means that it's different. It's it's one of a kind. We have a tendency to overuse that word sometimes and don't realize that. No, it really does mean something special. We are different than all of God's other creation. There's a lot that separates us and makes us different, makes us unique. One of the things that makes us truly unique is that we are made in the image of God. No other creature can say that. Look back again at Genesis 1, verse 26. What does it say? God created man. We already got that part, right? But it says, in his own image. And then, just in case we didn't get it, he wants to repeat it. In the image of God, he created him. We are unique among God's creation because we are created in his image. Again, nothing else is made in God's image. Now we're going to discuss this in a little more depth in a bit here, but just let that sink in for a second. We are unique among all of God's creation. It separates us from every other living thing. It's one of the reasons why in the Old Testament, murder is punishable by death. God takes that seriously when you destroy his image. It's why abortion is such... A vile act. It takes the life of something created in God's image. It's why God allows us to kill animals and eat animals, but we cannot kill humans and eat humans or whatever. Because we're made in God's image. That's exactly what he told Moses. Or not Moses, Noah, when he got off the ark. told him, you can now eat animals. But the taking of a human life demands death. Because, And he even tells Noah, because you're created in God's image. So we are unique. The last point I want to bring about about the origin of man is that we were created purposefully by God. We were created purposefully by God. What does that mean? Well, it means that God created us for a purpose. He had a purpose in creating us, but we have also been created for a purpose. We have a purpose as well. Go back again to Genesis 126. I told you we're going to learn a lot from that passage. Preach a whole sermon just on 126. Genesis 126 again. What does it tell us? Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them, oh, here comes the purpose, let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. If you jump down a little bit, verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over it. The fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Again, Moses is driving home a point because he tells us twice there what our purpose is. In a general sense, our purpose is twofold. One is reproduction and one is rule. 
all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. We are given primarily, in a general sense, two purposes. And I'm talking about mankind in general. Now we know, unfortunately, we live in a fallen world. And sometimes women, whether it's for biological reasons or other reasons, maybe don't have opportunity to have children. It's a tragedy. It's a result of sin. We know that. But in a general sense, the rule still applies, that God created mankind for the purpose of reproducing themselves and then ruling over God's creation. Paul even mentions eunuchs and others who have chosen to remain celibate and single. Some have been called to that purpose. And so I would argue that God didn't necessarily intend that every single person must reproduce. That's a rule that he's given to mankind generally. And there's no shame if that's not possible for whatever reason. But in a general sense, that rule applies. That was God's purpose for mankind. And you notice it says that if you look at Genesis 126 again, there's five commands given there. He says, verse 28, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it and rule over it. The first three reply to reproduction. The first three apply to reproduction. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill. Those same commands were given to creatures on the earth. They were given to birds of the sky and life in the sea. You'll notice that there's a biological difference as well because it says that he created man and woman. Why? <laughs> Their parts fit together. It's for the purpose of reproduction. So God created male and female in both animal life and human life. That's why marriage is between a man and a woman because it fulfills the purpose for which God created mankind. What's interesting is when you turn to Genesis chapter 2, the command or the, the, the conversation that the Lord has about Adam, when it says it's not good for Adam to be alone, do you ever think about why that is? We have a tendency to think about it in terms of loneliness, but that's not the word that Moses used when he wrote that. He didn't say, it's not good for man to be lonely. He says what? It's not good for man to be alone. And then what does he do? He parades all of the creatures in front of him that were commanded to multiply and fill the earth, and there's one dude, Adam. How is he going to fulfill his purpose if he can't? multiply and fill the earth. That's why it's not good for Adam to be alone. It isn't about loneliness. Think about it. He's walking in the garden. It says the Lord walked in the garden. He doesn't have, a, doesn't have sin yet. He's not lonely yet. But the thing he cannot do without a helpmate is he can't multiply. He can't fill the earth. He can't rule over it or subdue it. That's why it's not good. That's why we're told that he took Eve from his side, created her like him, and she would be a helpmate to him. Why? Because she would help him fulfill the purpose for which God called him. As part of that would be multiplying and filling the earth, but it would also be coming alongside him and helping him rule over God's creation. That's why it's not good for Adam to be alone. That's why none of the other animals, remember? God prayed all the animals, partly probably to show him, Adam, they're going to multiply. You can't do this by yourself. But it also shows that there's nothing in this creation that can help you do that. You need somebody just like you. And so that's what God designed. And so we have this purpose. And one of those purposes is to multiply and fill the earth. It glorifies God when mankind reproduces itself. Part of that is because we're in his image. And so part of our responsibility, our purpose, is to reproduce because it glorifies God. He designed us to do just that, even in a fallen world. Now, he said it would be more difficult. We saw that with, we see that with the discussion with Eve. The second part of that purpose is the rule. 
And that's the next two words, subdue and rule. That word subdue is actually generally used in a negative context. It means to bring something into bondage. But here it's used in a positive sense. It means to use something for one's benefit. In fact, I like the notes in the NET Bible. The translators of the NET Bible um, put all their notes to tell you why they translated things the way they did. It's a great resource to have if you've got an NET Bible because there's difficult passages sometimes. And they actually tell you why they chose to translate it some way. And one of the notes about this is they suggest that what it means to subdue the earth is to harness the earth's potential and use its resources to your benefit. Do you ever really think about that? Part of ruling over the earth actually, I believe, includes using the natural resources that God provided to benefit us, using farmland, cultivating and tilling, much like he told Adam to do in the garden. I think he even extends to, can I say it, using fossil fuels, (laughs) but to use them in a way that honors him, not destroying our planet and other things. And there's ways that we can use fossil fuels and other things. Believe it or not, we can cut down trees and burn them, folks. <laughs> you know, We can take gas out of the ground and burn it. We can burn it cleanly. And Maybe I'm being a little too political here, but that's the reality. We, God has, has told us to subdue the earth, to bring it under our control, and to use the natural resources that he's given to us to honor him and to glorify him. That's at the basis of this word, to subdue. It's not just bringing the earth and dominating it. It's not the idea. The idea is to use what God has given us for his benefit and for his glory. Building cities, expanding population. We can do that in a way that honors and glorifies God. We don't always do that because of sin. But that's the idea here. God has given us this. And if we go back to Genesis 1, and I wish we had a time to do it, to go through the amount of things within that chapter that really spell out how God designed this planet for our benefit, that we might use it for his glory and honor. The other part of that... Rule means to exercise dominion over it. We are created by God to be his authority figures here on earth. We are not a scourge as much as Bill Gates and others think that we need to shrink the population of humans because we're a scourge on this planet. They are wrong. Dave and I, as we were down at the the ark the other day, one of the possible estimates they give for the number of people on the planet before the flood is almost 20 billion people. As much as we are being told that we are overpopulating this planet, it can support a lot more people than it does. You could take the whole entire population of the world and you could stick them in the state of Texas, folks. Everything about that doesn't mean to be comfortable. But we are to exercise dominion over this planet. And it takes a lot of people to do that. And that's one of the ways that God expects us to fulfill our purpose. And so the last point there is that we were created purposefully by God. We have a purpose We're going to get into that more specifically later, but in a general sense, that purpose includes reproducing and ruling over God's creation. That glorifies him. We're to do that. So why is all this important to us? Why is our origin important to us? I'll give you four points. We didn't come about by random chance. We were made deliberately by God. We weren't some afterthought. He didn't just take a process. It's not like God woke up some morning and went, oh, a spark. (laughs) Look at what that created. That's interesting. No, we were created deliberately by him. We're not a product of evolution. We were created directly by God. He had his hands on us. He formed and fashioned us. That's going to come into perspective when we talk about why we have the bodies we do. We're not just animals. We do have more value than other creatures that God created because we're created in his image. So we were created uniquely as well. And then lastly, our lives have meaning and purpose. 
In a general sense, we were created by God to glorify him by filling his creation and ruling over it. In a specific sense, and we'll see this in a little bit, we were created by God to glorify him through the way that we worship, obey him, and how we actually carry out that purpose. And so we'll get to that in a little bit about the more specific purpose we have for every individual. But in a general sense, mankind is supposed to multiply and fill his planet and ultimately to rule over it. Now let's talk about the nature of man. Who are we? I'm going to look at three aspects to the nature of man. What makes us who we are? The first is that we have a material nature. We have physical bodies. Some of them better than others. Some of them are breaking down. I've been having my own issues lately. Um, Getting old kind of stinks. We have physical bodies. My pastor always referred to it as these tents that break down. And he's right. Thanks, Adam and Eve. But we have a material nature. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them physical bodies. Back to Genesis chapter 2, folks. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed man, what? Of the dust of the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. That's referring primarily to his earthly shell, his tent. So there's a material nature to us. Every human being, since Adam and Eve, has had a physical being, a physical body, even in the womb. Every living soul, from the moment at which the sperm and the egg come together, has a physical body, material form. Turn to Psalm chapter 139. You know the psalm. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame, that's the physical body, was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, that's referring to the soul, and your book were written all the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was none of them. And what David is describing here is the formation of the physical body and the spiritual side of life, all within his mother's womb. John chapter 1, verse 14, even Jesus himself had a physical body. Why? It says, and the word became flesh, and the flesh dwelt among us. Why is it important? Because in order for Jesus to die for us, he had to have a physical human body to become the sacrifice for what? Us. Because we have a material side. So the first thing, the first aspect of our human nature is that we are made of flesh. We have a material side to us. The second is just what you might imagine. We have an immaterial side to us. A non-physical nature as well. We are not just flesh and bones, as many atheists would like us to believe. Now, there are two primary views when it comes to our immaterial side. The one one is, I'm going to give you some fancy words here. First one is referred to as trichotomous. Trichotomous. It starts with T-R-I. Why is that? It refers to three parts. Some people think that human beings are made up of three parts. The body, the soul, and the spirit. They believe that the soul and the spirit are two separate things. Those are trichotomous, three parts. 
I'll quote a couple of passages for you. They use passages like 1 Thessalonians chapter 5.23 that says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, your soul, and your body be preserved completely without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus. So trichotomists would say, see, right there it says, body, soul, and spirit, they must be three parts. Another passage famous among trichotomists is Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. So they would say, see, since it talks about dividing the soul and the spirit, there must be two separate pieces. So if you have a body and a soul and a spirit, you must be made up of three. You must be a trichotomist. I think there's a different explanation for the division of soul and spirit there. We won't get into that right now, but you can ask afterwards if you want. The second view on who we are is something we call trichotomy. Or I'm sorry, dichotomy. Dichotomists believe that we are just simply two parts, material and immaterial. They believe that soul and spirit are exactly the same thing. And they would cite passages like Luke chapter 1, verses 46 and 47. Listen to this. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, they, now some would say, see, that's two, right? She said, talks about her soul and she talks about her spirit. But remember what we learned about Hebrew poetry? There's something called parallelism. And what parallelism does is it says the same thing in two different ways. And so what dichotomists would argue here is that Mary's talking about the same thing. It's just that she uses soul in the first instance. And she says, my soul exalts the Lord. But then she repeats that and simply chooses a different word to say the same exact thing. And my spirit rejoices in the Lord, my Savior. Does the same thing in Isaiah chapter 26, verse 9. At night, my soul longs for you. Indeed, my spirit within me seeks you diligently. Job chapter 7, verse 11. I will speak in my anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. And so what dichotomists would argue is that what these passages show is that soul and spirit are exactly the same thing. And it's the, the parallelism there of the Hebrew and then even of Greek that shows us that. So what are we? Are we two or are we three parts? And does it really matter? The dichotomist position is more widely accepted, meaning that we're simply two, simply material and immaterial, and that soul and spirit are the same. That is the more popular viewpoint. Um, That's the viewpoint that I hold. Now, is that critical? Trichotomists would say yes. Dichotomists would say no. I am a dichotomist. I, I believe that as you look at the language, that soul and spirit are the same thing, that they are simply used somewhat interchangeably simply to refer to our non-material nature. But I'm not going to die on that hill. I don't think you should either. Um, I don't know if it matters a whole lot. And partly the reason I believe this is because the scriptures refer to that immaterial part using a variety of words. In fact, you're familiar with one of them, Mark chapter 12, verse 30. You shall love the Lord your God with what? Your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Those are all ways to describe the non-material part of who we are. Oftentimes, the heart is used interchangeably with the soul and the spirit in the scriptures. And so I believe that what the scriptures teach is that we are simply material and immaterial, and the immaterial is described using a variety of words. But again, I don't think we need to be dogmatic about that. You're not going to fail a test if we give you a quiz. Now, with this in mind, one other aspect to this immaterial part here is that our immaterial and our material, 
were never intended to die. Rather, death is a result of sin and the fall. Dustin's going to spend more time in this when he talks about homardiology, which is a study of sin, and then soteriology, the study of salvation. But listen to Genesis chapter 2, verse 16. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you can eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Why? For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Did you catch that? God warned him, Adam, everything in this garden is for your benefit. But there's one thing you cannot do. That's to eat from one tree in the garden. That's it. If you eat from that tree, the consequences are you're going to die. Death was never part of God's plan when he created Adam and Eve. Even though he created us with a material side and an immaterial side, God did not intend that those would die. He intended that those would live on forever. So he warned Adam, disobey, violate my relationship with you, and the consequence is that you're going to die. And we know that the Lord was talking there both about physical and spiritual death. And it's because the scriptures bear it out. Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. Turn there with me. Genesis 3, 19. As he's giving these consequences to their sin after they had fallen, when he comes to Adam, verse 19, he says, By the sweat of your face you will eat bread. But then look at what he says. Till you return to the ground because from it you were taken, for you are dust. That's a reference to physical death. That as a result, as a consequence of the sin, the Lord told Adam, guess what? You will now die. I took you from the ground, you'll now return to the ground. It's a consequence of his disobedience for sin. When you get to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Paul talks about the spiritual side of that. We know in the garden here that Adam didn't die immediately. His physical death came some eight or 900 years later. It wasn't immediate. But what did happen was a spiritual death. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. He says, Through one man, Adam, death spread to all men because all sinned. And in that immediate context, Paul was talking about spiritual death first, but physical death second. Because both of those things happened when Adam chose to sin. So again, God never intended that we should die materially or immaterial. He intended that we live forever. In fact, that's exactly what happens because when we come to Christ, what happens to our spiritual side? Regeneration. It's born again. We can live on for all eternity. But what else happens? We get our bodies back. And we get glorified bodies. And what happens to those glorified bodies? They live on for all eternity. And it's because that's the way God intended it. So when we chose to sin and fall, and we suffered death spiritually, immaterially, and physically, materially, what God does to rectify that problem is he redeems us both spiritually and physically. And so we go off into eternity with new, glorified, resurrected body and spirit. Back to what God initially intended. And so the other aspect of our Nature is that God never intended us to suffer physical or spiritual death. It's a result of sin. Now, the good news is that God made a way for us in Jesus Christ to experience that. Thank God for Jesus, right? He restored both our spirit and our bodies in Christ as long as we have faith in him. Now, the third and final aspect of our nature 
is that we were made in God's image and his likeness. So one aspect is we have an immaterial side. Another aspect is we have a physical side. And the third aspect is that we are made in God's image, and that is what makes us unique. I'm going to go back to Genesis chapter 1 again, verse 26. And then God said, Let us make man, what, in our image, according to our likeness. You jump down into verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. How many times are we told there that God created us in his image? Was it four times? Probably because it's important. So that third and final aspect of our nature is that we were created in God's image. Now, there are two primary views on what it means to be created in God's image. There's a third view. But there are two primary views. They're the most popular views. They're probably ones you've heard about. One view is that being made in God's image means that we share certain attributes with him. For instance, we have intelligence, we have reason, we have rationality, wisdom, speech, moral attributes like goodness, love, mercy, justice, things that animals don't necessarily have. Now, I would argue animals have goodness in the sense that they're good to be around, right? A great pooch at home, a dog, we love it. But that's not what it really means. There are certain attributes that we share with God that no other creatures share. And so that's one view of being created in God's image is that that's what it really means. That we share attributes with God that no other creatures do. Another view is that being made in God's image has less to do with the attributes that we have and instead has to do with the function that God created us for. So there are some who say, no, it's not about the image or about the attributes. It's about ruling over God's creation. That to be made in God's image means that we rule over his creation just as he rules over his creation. And so that's what it means for us to be made in his image. We rule just like he did. Now, I would argue that there's probably truth to both of these. It's hard to argue against that. However, there's a third view that holds that it's our physical appearance that reflects God's glory. And that's what it means to be made in his image and likeness. Now, you may think about that for a second, think, wait a minute, how could it be that our physical appearance is what's being talked about here? There's an individual by the name of Dr. Robert Pine. He actually wrote about it in a chapter of a book called Understanding Christian Theology. He's a professor of theological studies down at Dallas Theological Seminary. I don't know if he's still there now. He was there back in the 90s. But he actually writes about this idea that when Moses wrote that we were creating God's image, when God moved him through the Spirit to write those words, that what he was really getting at was our physical appearance. Payne actually writes about that and does a a good job to describe it. But what's interesting is, you go back to the 4th century, John Chrysanthem and another Syrian Syrian theologian called Ephraim, named Ephraim, they actually wrote that Adam and Eve, their physical appearances represented God's glory, and it was their belief that Adam and Eve actually had translucent bodies. A little freaky, isn't it? Now, it's their opinion. There may be some support for that. Maybe not. We don't know. But hear me out on this for a second. The words image and likeness, when they're used in Genesis chapter 1, when it says that God created us in his image, in his likeness he created them, I want you to look at Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. When we're trying to figure out what something means... You look not just at the context of those verses, but you look at context surrounding those verses. And I want you to notice something. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. We're going to see something interesting. 
This is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. That's repeated from Genesis 1, 26 and 27. He created them male and female, and he blessed them and named them man in the day when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he became the father of a son, look at this, in his own likeness and according to his image. The exact same two words used of Adam and Eve being created in God's image and likeness. But in this case, it's referring to Seth. His son, Adam's son. And he named him Seth. Then the days of Adam after he became the father of Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. So all the days of Adam lived were 930 years. What we see here, what would be your natural understanding when you read Genesis 1, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 5 there, regarding Seth, and you see those words, image and likeness, what does that communicate in what we call a face view reading or a face value reading of the text? What would you expect? that Seth looked like Adam, that his likeness and image had some physical appearance. He probably had fingers and toes. He probably had a head and a face and eyes. And that's what's communicated. What's interesting is if you look at these words, likeness and image, throughout the Bible, in almost every instance when they're used, they refer to physical likeness. That's the way these words are used. So, if the words are used to refer to physical likeness, almost everywhere else in the scripture, in fact, it's used of idols, which is rather interesting. If it's used that way in the rest of the scriptures, if it's used that way in Genesis 5 as we're getting to Adam's descendant, Seth, why do we just assume that it must mean something else when it comes to mankind being created in the image and likeness of God? That's an assumption we make. I want you to think of something else. Exodus chapter 34. I want you to turn there for a second. Exodus chapter 34. Exodus 34. Jump down to verse 29. Remember what happened to Moses when he was in the presence of God? Exodus chapter 34, starting at verse 29. It came about when Moses was coming down from Mount Sinai, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hands, and he was coming down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because of his speaking with him, God. So when Aaron and the sons of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Then Moses called to them, and Aaron and the rulers of the congregation returned to him, and Moses spoke to them. Afterwards, all the sons of Israel came near, and he commanded them to do everything that the Lord had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Then when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face, But whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak to him, he would take off the veil until he came out. And whenever he came out and spoke to the sons of Israel, what he had been commanded, the sons of Israel would see the face of Moses and the skin of Moses' face shone. So Moses would replace the veil over his face until he went in to speak with him. What we find is that Moses' skin began to radiate after spending time in God's presence. Do you remember that Genesis... Chapter 1 says, or Genesis 3 says that the Lord walked in the garden with Adam and Eve. Is it possible that Adam and Eve, as they walked in the garden, may have also reflected the presence and the glory of God just as Moses did after Moses spent time in the Lord's presence? It's not unreasonable to think that's the case. Now, again, I can't make an argument that Moses, or that Adam and Eve glowed. What I'm merely suggesting is there are some, including some church fathers, who believe that may have very well been the case. And part of the reason for that is God's glory in the Old Testament 
is generally revealed as a radiance, a glowing, bright lights. That is the way that his glory is oftentimes revealed. And when it came to Moses, that's exactly what happened as well. Moses being in the presence of the Lord and seeing his glory, his skin took on that very same radiance of sorts. And as they saw Moses, Moses' skin radiated to the point where he had to cover up his face. Is it possible that that may have been the case with Adam and Eve in the garden? Now, there's other things to consider with this. You look at Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. Turn there with me. Psalm chapter 8. Whoops. Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 6. David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the sons of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than God. And you crown him with glory and majesty. Those are words used of God. And again, oftentimes the glory of God is reflected in his radiance. There are some who look at what David wrote here and wonder if what David is suggesting is that mankind, when he was created, just in seeing Adam and Eve, you would see God's glory and majesty pre-fall. Maybe that's what David's describing, maybe not. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, For man ought not to have his head covered, since he is what? In the image and glory of God. Same words used again, image and glory. Now, we know we're in a fallen world here. I'm not suggesting that any of us glow or that any of us reveal God's glory in that respect. One of the things that Dr. Payne suggests is that when we look at human beings today, that the original glory and radiance that might have been seen in Adam have now been muted because of sin. In fact, he refers to it as defaced, but not erased, tarnished, but not destroyed. I don't know, but I do know something else. At a minimum, I believe that our bodies, our physical bodies, were designed to reflect God's image. Maybe we don't glow, but I want you to consider something else. Turn to Ezekiel chapter 1. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26. This is a vision that Ezekiel sees, and it's really rather interesting. He sees this vision in heaven, okay? And it's a, it's a vision of God. But look at what happens. Above the expanse, verse 26, over their heads there was something resembling a throne, something you would sit on, right? Like lapis lazuli in appearance, And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. So this is in heaven. It's a picture of Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, above the throne. And he already, before his incarnation, looks like what? Looks like a human being. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward, from his waist upward, something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within him. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance all around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord that when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice speaking. Now from there, turn to chapter 8, and we see something very similar. Chapter 8, verses 1 and following. It came about in the sixth year, on the seventh, or on the fifth day of the sixth month, I was sitting in my house, and the elders of Judah sitting with me, 
or before me, and the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. Then I looked, and behold, a likeness as of the appearance of a man from his loins downward. There was appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward, the appearance of brightness and the appearance of glowing metal. He stretched out the form of his hand and caught me by the rock of my, or lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. I want to turn there, but chapter 40, verses 1 through 4, describes the same thing. Now here's what's important about this. Oftentimes, we're told that the reason Jesus would appear on earth in the Old Testament in pre-incarnate form as a man was because we were people and it could relate to us. We could understand it. But what we see in the Old Testament is before the incarnation, before Jesus ever came to this earth, when Isaiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and others saw the pre-incarnate Christ in heaven, which always refers to the glory and the radiance of God as we saw here, how does he appear? He looks like a man. Now, you can argue one of two things. You can say, well, that's just so that we can understand that. So God made it look like a man, but that's not really the form he... But everything we see here, including Ezekiel, suggests that there is something about the form that we have, the form of man, that existed in the image and the glory of God before we were ever created. And in fact, we were created to model that. In other words... Rather than God saying, well, I created man to look like this, so I'll make myself look like this in the Old Testament just so they understand me. I'll describe myself as having a face and hands and a backside and everything else just because that's the way I made man and he needs to be able to understand it, so I've got to talk in his language. Or the opposite is true. That God, as he designed or as he decided to create us and says, I'm going to create them in my image and my image is this. I think that's the more likely. And I think that's the face value reading of the text. When it says, we were created in God's image, he looked at himself and he says, I'm going to make them look just like me with a face and hands. Now, I know that might freak you out a little bit. I may, you may say, I've never heard of that before, but again, it's not an unusual position. Like I said, Dr. Payne has written about it since the 1990s. But I think that the biblical text probably fits that view a little bit better. Now, I'm not saying that, we've talked about this before, God is an invisible God. We can't see him. We will see him, however, we're told. And we are told that there are some, that this idea of seeing God is a reality. And it is something we will see. I don't think we should just write off, when it talks about God having eyes or God having a face, that we should just write that off as some type of, you know, personification. I think there's probably reality to that. That there is something about the human form that exists in God's nature, his image and his likeness, and we were created to reflect that. Now, maybe Adam and Eve glowed too, just like the pre-incarnate Christ above this throne, and maybe that was diminished and taken away after the fall. I don't know. I can't answer that. But it doesn't seem unreasonable, especially knowing how Moses glowed when he was in the presence of the Lord. So, I think there is enough evidence to consider that idea. That our image and likeness means that God made us look like him. Again, not dogmatic, not going to die on that hill, but I think there's value in that. Now let's do this real briefly, just a few more minutes here. I'll go through this fairly rapidly. Why is it that that's important to us? We're not just lumps of clay that are destined to return to the dirt. 
We're both physical and spiritual beings intended to live forever. Our physical bodies, our spiritual bodies were all designed by God to last forever. Sin destroyed that, so God has to redeem that, and he's done that in Christ. As his image bearers, we're designed to reflect his glory, and I think we do that just by our very being. Now, very last thing, the ultimate purpose of God, and I'll go through this really quickly. took a little more time so far than I intended, but our ultimate purpose. What's our ultimate purpose? It isn't just to populate the earth. Our ultimate purpose is to ultimately glorify God. There's How many of you are familiar with the Westminster Confession? Does that ring a bell to some of you? Yeah. The Westminster Convention, or, or, um, Confession, back in the 1600s, they were trying to find a way to codify what it is that the church believed. And so a group of Scottish and English theologians from the Church of Scotland and the Church of England came together and they wrote the Westminster Catechism. Some call it the Catechism, some refer to it as a confession. But it codified everything they believed and they did it in a format that was basically question and answers. And the very first question, you might have heard this, what is the chief end of man? Anybody know how they answered that? What is the chief end purpose of man? Their answer? A man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is the simplest way to boil it down. Why were you created? You were created to glorify God and enjoy him forever. God didn't just create us to fill and rule over his creation. He wanted us to glorify him and to enjoy him from this day all the way through eternity. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. When, whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all, what? For the glory of God. Whatever you do, it says. Whatever you do, do it all for God's glory. Romans chapter 15, verses 5 through 6. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant to you to be of the same mind one to another according to Christ Jesus. Why? So that with one accord you might do what? One thing. Glorify God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our purpose. That's our ultimate purpose is to glorify God and then to enjoy Him forever. The Psalms are filled with verses about enjoying the Lord. Psalm chapter 5, verse 11. But let all who take refuge be glad. Let them sing forever for joy. Psalm chapter 23, verse 6. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Why? To enjoy His presence. Psalm chapter 32, verse 11. The righteous man will be glad in the Lord and... He'll take refuge in him. And all the upright in heart will glory, will enjoy the Lord forever. Psalm chapter 68, verse 3. But let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before the Lord. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. The Psalms are filled with commands to enjoy the Lord and to rejoice in him. That's why God created us. We weren't just created to fill the planet. That's a general purpose. We weren't just created to rule over the planet. We were designed to do it righteously, to do it in a way that glorifies the Lord, but in addition, to be able to enjoy Him forever. That's why God created us to live for eternity, so that we might enjoy Him for all eternity. That's the end goal. That's why we don't just seek pleasure in this life, because the goal is to have pleasure for all of life, for all of eternity, because that's the way God created us. Ephesians chapter one, just turn there briefly and we'll wrap it up with this. Ephesians chapter 1. There's one thing that makes it possible for us to enjoy, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. And it's the work that God has already done for us. Ephesians chapter 1, chapter th- or verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. 
just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to the administration suitable for the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, in the heavens and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according, predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. I'll let you read the rest of chapter 1 on your own. But everything in chapter 1 of Ephesians tells us that God has already done everything to make it possible for us to glorify him and to enjoy life in him. In fact, at the very end of uh, chapter oh, I'm sorry, chapter 2, at the very end of uh, verse 10 there, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. It says for good works there. I think a better rendering of that is we have been created in Christ by good works and it's by God's works that we should walk in them. In other words, the author, Paul, is saying that God has done all these things for us that we might walk in them. Why? To enjoy him for all eternity. And so just as the Westminster Catechism says that the end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That is our ultimate purpose, and that is accomplished in one thing, and that's Jesus Christ. Amen?